From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Southern grasslands are nearly extinct, and the species that depend on them are fading fast. That's according to the Southeastern Grasslands Institute, which also points out ecologists consider this loss one of the greatest threats to biodiversity. That's right grasslands. You already know that the coastal plain of southeastern North Carolina is a biodiversity hotspot. You might not know that we are in the third year of a big decade. The United Nations has dubbed 2021 to 2030 as the decade of ecosystem restoration. World environmental leaders are making big claims about the benefits. If done effectively, they say, restoring ecosystems can combat climate change, eliminate poverty, cut the chances of another pandemic, even prevent a mass extinction. The ecosystems that need help in southeastern North Carolina include freshwater and marine environments, as well as grasslands and savannas. In fact, the new Hanover County landfill sits on more than 700 acres and has, through the stewardship of environmental managers, blossomed into an example of successful restoration. Today, we're going to hear from a restoration ecologist who's working with local leaders to save degraded ecosystems. We'll find out why grasslands are such a critical part of the picture, how she thinks restoration can work amid the growing human population and resulting development, and we'll find out what regular folks can do to help. Amy Long is a senior lecturer, research scientist, and certified environmental educator in the Department of Environmental Sciences at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where she specializes in conservation and restoration. Amy Long, welcome to Coastline. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's really good to have you with us. Now, let's go back to the beginning when we talk about this issue of biodiversity loss. Would it be okay if we just exhaled and accepted the fact that some of these species are going away forever and we can, we can choose to just live with that? That's an excellent starting question. And I would say for most species that are at that brink of loss, I would say no. Um, and that's because most species that we're losing today, we're losing because of human activity. If it were a species that through evolution was such a specialized specialized organism. It only ate one or two things, for example, or only existed in one teeny tiny little place like our Venus flytrap. Um, that might be a different story. Losing that one because of evolution was, was set up for loss eventually. Um, I would feel a little differently. But I think most species that we're talking about when we talk about biodiversity loss are because of human alteration to the environment, and therefore we need to pay attention and, and see what we can do to fix that. What are some examples of species, both plant and animal, that we know we've lost kind of recently in southeastern North Carolina? Um, so we, I am a plant ecologist, um, so my, my bias is going to show through plants, um, but 
I am, we do have the Carolina parakeet that was lost, um, was a, a magnificent bird that we no longer have. Um, we've got threats of other birds like the red cockaded woodpecker. It's definitely still here. It hasn't been lost yet. Um, plants, I'm working with a state rare plant because it's very limited distribution. It's not lost yet, but that is related to wiregrass that many people are familiar with. It's called um, Sandhills 3-on, um, Aristida condensata. Um, not lost yet. State rare could be lost if we if we don't preserve the grassland habitats that it's in. Um, Why is that particular species of wiregrass? It's it's a um, it's a three on grass. It's related to wiregrass. So the Why wire is that so important on its own? So again, we're talking about a species that is. It's what we call biologically locally rare. Um, it has a very limited distribution. It's an endemic species, so it occurs nowhere else in the world. So again, going back to the Venus flytrap that most of our listeners are familiar with, I, I hope most people in the listening area realize that Wilmington's the epicenter for the distribution of the Venus flytrap. It only occurs in about a 70-mile radius of Wilmington. Um, and the three-on or the, the, the sandhills three-on grass that I'm talking about also has a very limited distribution. It's a little bit larger, um, but in North Carolina, it only exists in five counties. New Hanover County is one of those. Um, it's actually how I got involved with work at the landfill in the county was trying to do some rescue work of this species. Um, but we, without being able to study it, we don't know its significance in the environment. And certain species have really critical roles in keeping a, a local habitat and ecosystem working properly. They, they provide ecosystem services to the, the area. Um, so whether if we're talking about plants like ecosystem services, like flood control, pollution abatement, um, soil soil stabilization, the roots preventing erosion from happening. All of these organisms um, around us are providing ecosystem services that not a lot of us think about every single day. Uh, we might think about trees and how we get lumber and and other resources from them, but we don't tend to think about grasses. Um, right. And, and we, we also, we don't tend to think about grasslands mm -hmm. as Oh, that's a beautiful ecosystem I want to protect. I mean, I, I certainly my first image of a grassland is a sort of monochromatic, n not very interesting looking stretch of natural area that hides maybe, you know, not that gives cover to different species that all are also not, you know. Zebras. Uh, so, <laughs> so explain to us why grasslands are, are so important in the whole scheme of things and why people like you, restoration ecologists, are alarmed that we're losing them so rapidly. Absolutely. And I think you hit on a really good point there where people's perceptions when they hear certain words might be um, very fine focused on the charismatic things like the zebras you mentioned. We think of the African savannas and we think of perhaps like the tall grass prairies of the Midwest and all the way out to the Rockies. And we think of those the, the grains blowing in very monochromatic browns, maybe greens. Um, 
but not until you actually get into them with a naturalist or a botanist or some sort of ecologist, field ecologist, do you start to see the very high biodiversity we have in in grasslands. The other thing I want to point out about the term grasslands is because those are the images we tend to associate with it, those more savanna and dry, plain-like environments, we're overlooking entire types of grasslands. Meadows, wet meadows, um, our, our marshes, our tidal marshes, our freshwater marshes, these are all types of grasslands as well. So here people are very familiar with the longleaf pine forest. Um, what they might not be familiar with is that that longleaf pine forest is also highly diverse and that there are grasslands in with it. There's pine savannas, but there's other type of grasslands um, in there as well. And so depending on what that soil looks like and what that moisture looks like in the soil, the elevation of where you are, you're going to have a dramatically higher level of biodiversity if if you're there with the person that knows the material, honestly, I started in botany identifying dead grasses, and people just thought that that was the weirdest way to get into ecology. <laughs> I'm not going to say it was out of choice, but I was helping a grad student, and it's kind of where my love of that landscape started, and I, I can't really get away from them. It's a, it's a, It's Everyone focuses on water and forests, and these grasslands, um, over 90% have been lost already here in our coastal plain. And you told me that that's, that's due to two things, fire suppression and urban sprawl. Yes. Can you explain the fire suppression aspect of this? What does that mean in terms of losing grasslands? Sure. So with human development in these areas that are typically very fire-dependent ecosystems, I think most of your listeners readily recognize that longleaf pines themselves are fire-dependent ecosystems. Um, what that means is natural fire. So fires from lightning strikes, fires from high summer temperatures where winds alone are going to to generate that spark in the leaf litter and the pine needles and whatnot. So we have an ecosystem that before human settlement, um, even before um, Native American settlement, um, the, the plants and the soils evolved to frequent low-intensity fires here. We had very low-intensity fires. So they happened seasonally, but they weren't big, huge, like wildfires like a lot of people think about. Um, and what do those fires do for the ecosystem? So we, we, we learn more and more all the time about what those fires are needed for. I think a lot of people are aware that um, certain trees, like our longleaf pines, require that heating to open up the cones, to release the seeds. Um, I think what a lot of people might not be aware of is that fire alone is burning up all that excess leaf litter and biomass, the dead material in the environment, and that is then putting carbon and other nutrients back into the soil. And so that fire is, although it seems... Um, it seems destructive because you're, of course, losing things. It's actually putting nutrients back into the environment. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration with UNCW restoration ecologist Amy Long. Still ahead, we're going to talk about 
how she's helped to restore the new Hanover County landfill area, and why healthy tidal marshes are a key part of southeastern North Carolina's broader environmental health. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. UNCW restoration ecologist Amy Long is working to bring back grassland and savanna habitat around the coastal plain region of southeastern North Carolina. She's also studying the best ways to restore tidal marsh areas, but we'll get into that in a little while. So the New Hanover County landfill is this great example of grassland habitat restoration. Can you talk about how you and environmental managers approached this and which parts of that land you're, um, you're restoring? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I previously mentioned this, this rare native grass that um, brought me out to the landfill. I was working with Professor Roger Shu, also at the university. And we were working with the county landfill managers and, and waste management um, director out there because they they had to expand the landfill, right? So they had reached capacity of a current mound that, that they were using, and they had to then go into development of another mound. And so what Roger and I were able to do were go out and, and do our own um, biological surveys, looking at what species were out there. Of course, they've already been doing this, and they've done it over all of the time out there at the landfill. But we were able to go and, and do a recent survey and find the populations of the state rare plants and translocate them on site to areas of the property that are classified as um, as natural area. so Meaning garbage won't be dumped there. Absolutely. So there'll never be development. There's no trucks activities. There's no waste activity, anything like that. So our county landfill, if you haven't been out to it, is about 700 acres, and it's situated along um, Fishing Creek and one of the branches of the Cape Fear. And so there is a wide buffer zone um, of the property that abuts the waterways, and, and that has to remain in natural natural vegetation. So most of that is trees. It's a really beautiful mixed um, hardwood and, and pine stand, beautiful spot, really high elevation there naturally, which you don't normally get in, in coastal North Carolina. Um, but so we worked to find areas there that we could translocate, transplant the, the state rare plant. And that kind of just opened up the entire world of working with Sam and Joe at the landfill to restoration ideas. Um, I will say that our county landfill is amazing in terms of their environmental stewardship. Um, they have their 
They were the very first lined landfill in our state in 1981. It wasn't even required at that point in time. That means that there's no leachate. There's nothing leaving the site. Um, they've got a double reverse osmosis system. I just was talking with them this past week, and I think it was out in the news that a solar station is going in to help them run everything. They collect the methane to create electricity. They're really, really amazing environmental stewards out there. And so they gave me carte blanche, really, to say, all right, here are our natural areas. What do you want to do? What, what we These are our restrictions working on expired mounds because there's a lot of permitting that has the monitoring has to go on for a very long time to make sure that soil is doing what it's supposed to. Engineers are very afraid of trees growing on capped landfills. They're afraid the roots of the trees are going to cap. They're going to crack the capped um the cap, the clay cap on a landfill. So knowing that we had this tremendous loss of grasslands in the the coastal plain, um, we were able to go in and do a an experimental approach to how best and most inexpensively um, actually convert large land like this into much more biodiverse grassland habitat. So that's what we did. We went in and we had a a multi-layered design looking at different levels of biodiversity. Some plots we only planted with three species of grasses, for example. Others we only planted wildflowers. I think there were like 11 species of that. And our high density, we had five different um, grass species and 17 wildflowers. So we, we changed the biodiversity levels and then also, soil amendments. Can you just scatter the seeds into the environment and will it will it go? Do you need to add mulch or fertilizer? Do you need to remove the existing vegetation and start with bare soil? So it was a really fun, awesome experiment that we got to do with grad students and undergrads. So um, I just want to be clear on yeah. these closed cells mm-hmm. of the landfill. So mm-hmm. they, they get full and mm-hmm. then it, you need to close them mm-hmm. with a clay cap. And that's when you plant some of these native grasses and wildflowers. And is that where you're talking about planting these things? I'm glad you asked for clarification. So when you when you close a landfill um, in the U.S. now, you have to do a clay cap. And that clay cap, if I recall correctly, don't hold me to this, um, the clay cap is generally two feet deep. It's either 18 or 24 inches deep. And then you've got another um, at least foot and a half, if not three feet of soil brought in on top of that clay cap. And so that soil you want to be brought in from as local an area as possible so that you have all of the native seeds and nutrients and soil profiles in there. Um, but you work with what you can. Um, and so the site that we have been working on at the landfill is actually two different mounds. The one mound was never a, a landfill per se. It's what they now refer to as Fran's Forest, and it was named after Hurricane Fran that hit in 1996. Um And so that mound is literally in between that buffer zone and the oldest mound that they call cells on the site. And so that's just been 
vegetated over years and we've been planting trees and then also doing this grassland habitat there. But they did allow us, because they weren't trees, they did allow us to do the grassland manipulation experiment on the oldest cell that's been closed since like 1986. Um, And the results were... Happily good for a manager. We it didn't require a lot of ground prep. Like honestly, just putting the seeds in with some mulch worked better than any other treatment. Um, and this is actually working in terms of bringing back other species. Absolutely. Like you said to me the craziest thing. You said <laughs> that you can go to the landfill, the New Hanover County landfill, yeah. and regularly see bald eagles. Yep. And you also said a butterfly researcher considers that area one of the most, like the most diverse butterfly population that he's seen. Yeah, absolutely. So one of our retired colleagues in our department, John Taggart, the best naturalist I know in the state, if you ever get a chance to to see John Taggart, go in the field with him. But he he walks really fast. (laughs) Um, But he has been doing since I since I got this grassland restoration project started. We started right before the pandemic hit. So Delayed, but 20 through 22, basically, 2022 is when Sounds we like a good it. time to restore grasslands, be out there in the landfill. With, and it was nice know. that it was just me and a grad student because we could go outside. Yeah. <laughs> it took a lot of approvals, but we got them. Um, and so, yeah, John started doing monthly butterfly surveys, and he does them, I think, almost year-round. And he does them throughout the county, and consistently the, the landfill – is not only the most butterflies he sees, but it's the highest diversity. It's the most species of butterflies and moths he sees. He sees a couple species there that he doesn't tend to see anywhere else really in the county. Um, so it's been really exciting working with him because I've learned I've learned a little bit about that too. But yeah, honestly, bald eagles, Mississippi kites, um, kestrels, you name, you name the predatory bird, it's out there. We've got wildlife cams up and consistently get um, great shots of bear, um, foxes, of course, the alligators that are using the wetland, the constructed wetland back behind our site are always fun to catch on camera. Um, And so what is this what does this prove to you about what we could do in other places? I think this is proof positive that it's really easy to think about long-term management of a site. And instead of just putting in grass, putting in that lawn species and mowing, 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 um, you can think about bringing back diversity by just using a suite of native wildflowers and grasses and reducing your mowing, because again, we're talking about fire-dependent ecosystems, that they want that yearly burn, and you're never gonna do that on a landfill, right? So instead of burning, we use mowing as a management technique. So instead of mowing like six times a year or more for grass, they mow twice a year to maintain this higher biodiversity grasslands. Now you mentioned to me at one point something called old growth grasslands. What what are those, and how is that different from this restoration area? So we talked a little bit about succession and just old growth um, forests and and how habitats evolve and develop. Um, 
because of the fire regimen that we should have that's been suppressed, um, we've we've basically just put them out when they happen because they're now so close to human habitat. We don't want the fires for a large part. Um, What's happened is that where we saw grasslands, if they weren't destroyed through land development, um, they've been allowed to go through succession and they've turned into woodlands or even potentially forests. And not that that's anything wrong with a forest, but if you're talking about trying to restore um, the native landscape and the ecosystem services that those native landscapes provide, then we should be managing to have a, a landscape matrix of forest, prairies, savannas, grasslands. So like tall grass prairies of the Midwest, that's what we kind of think about more when we're talking about like old growth um, grasslands. They've been established, not they haven't been destroyed. And you see just amazing, beautiful di- biodiversity in those those sorts of grasslands for sure. You're listening to Coastline. We're talking with UNCW restoration ecologist Amy Long, another kind of ecosystem that we know is threatened around the world is uh, the title coastal wetlands, mm-hmm. actually. According to the Yale Environmental Review, these this type of ecosystem is being destroyed faster than nearly any other kind of ecosystem. How does that affect us here? Do you see that here? Absolutely. Um, the, the biggest threat, of course, is development, land development, and then sea level rise. So in a changing climate, as, as we do see changes to our um, daily tidal heights. I mean, Wilmington, North Carolina is the number one city, if you can call it that, for sunny day nuisance flooding. And that's simply because of sea levels increasing, also land dropping in elevation as well. And a few other factors that go in there. But um, yeah, the loss of our wetlands, especially our tidal wetlands, again, we're a coastal community here, is mostly due to land development and sea level rise. I want to make sure I'm not conflating terms or mixing them Mm -hmm. in a way that that isn't quite accurate, but what's the difference between a salt marsh and a tidal wetland? Good question. All right, so a a salt marsh is truly going to be that, that grassland, that marsh grassland that is seeing um, like high salinity values, almost like the water coming up on a beach, right? Um, So right at the mouth of rivers of our big estuaries dumping out into oceans is where you're going to see salt marshes along our barrier islands. The backsides of our barrier islands are salt marshes. As you go upriver, like Cape Fear River, any river that is truly dumping out into the ocean, as you go up, so by the time you get to Wilmington, we've transitioned, the salinity has dropped enough that it's not freshwater yet, is what we call brackish. It's kind of an in-between between salt and fresh. That um, makes sense. So, yeah. And so Yale says that healthy salt marshes store more carbon per acre than almost anything else on the planet? Yeah, we are learning so, so much about these coastal ecosystems, not just our salt marshes, but the seagrass beds as well. That is another type of habitat that we've lost a lot of here in North Carolina. And there's some colleagues in the biology department in particular who are investigating those sorts of questions. But... um, 
yeah, we're, we're losing them at rapid rates. And you've been working on also restoring tidal marshes. And first of all, tell us what uh, a degraded tidal marsh ecosystem might look like. So a lot of the systems I've worked in that are that are considered tidal marshes, whether that's my work here in New Hanover County or work I did previously in New Jersey and New York, um, most of that degraded marsh is seen in in physical loss of the marsh soils. So because of erosion, primarily, we are literally losing the mats of salt marsh cordgrass, which is like the only thing that grows right where the water is coming changing tidally. It's the only it's the only salt marsh grass that can tolerate that high level of salinity and flux back and forth all day long. And as you move up a marsh and up elevation, you get into the mid marsh zone and then the high marsh zone, and that's when your soils start to change a little bit, and you can start getting other plants in there. Um, so, very typically, what we're seeing is that loss of the low marsh. It's literally just washed into the river or wherever you are, whether it's the intracoastal or a river system. Um, so, and the, so the tidal marsh, the the mat of the plants just goes away? Literally. Or? Yeah, literally. So if you're when you're driving around town and you're driving over any little bridge and you're going over marsh and you'll see the undercutting that the water does. So it almost looks like a cliff of mud with the with the salt marsh grasses there. Eventually, that erosion happens to the point that that mat is going to fall. Gravity gravity works, right? And so sea level rise is doing that. It can. Yeah, absolutely, because it's changing, it's changing the shoreline. And so it's increasing wave energy. Um, the, the marsh itself, when we're talking about effects of sea level rise, that marsh is submerged longer than it should be. Um, and salinity is getting to that mid and back marsh. Um, but most of the sites I work on locally, really, it's you're missing that low marsh. You're missing that front zone. So it's a question of if I'm going to restore this, how am I going to do that? How am I going to get space back, especially if my sea level rise or my river rise, my tidal rise is an issue? Um, and so what we're doing there is trying to create living shorelines that help rebuild that front marsh zone. So whether that's through like oyster bags to also simultaneously not only restore the marsh, but allow for oyster settlement and increase that, um, that wonderful resource that we have here. Um, or maybe it's living shorelines where we've got some other um, We've got some other sort of structure to slow that water down as we're planting the backside of it. And what would that structure look like? Um, if you are familiar with Brunswick Town, Fort Anderson, our, one of our state historic sites here, we, my, one of my colleagues in environmental sciences, Dr. Devin Yuley, and I have been working out there for about four years now with project managers there, and they have a really novel system called wave attenuators, and they look like concrete tile stacks is what they look like. There's currently four different phases of these, um, and they're purposely designed to be just so at high tide, you would only you should only see like one layer of this tower. And then at low tide, depending on where you are on the river, you might see four stacks, five stacks, 
think we only go up to seven. Can't remember. Um, but those stacks are built to reduce erosion along our along the state historic sites shoreline. And on the backside of that is where I come into play on this project with figuring out, again, best bang for your buck on how do you allow for plants to grow back there now. You're listening to Coastline. After this short break, UNCW restoration ecologist Amy Long on some things communities and individuals can do to restore native habitat. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. UNCW restoration ecologist Amy Long is committed to rehabilitating local tidal marshes, grasslands, and savannas. She already has evidence that strategic restoration can bring back biodiversity that was nearly lost in the New Hanover County landfill property. The butterfly and bald eagle populations there are just two of the species that researchers cite as proof the ecosystem is a healthy one. So what can successful restoration look like if you are not an environmental scientist or a local environmental manager? What's, what's one of the big things that either communities, because we can talk about, you know, grassroots efforts. <laughs> I see what I did there. <laughs> I see what and, you did <laughs> And individuals as well. So, so what does successful restoration look like or how can they? Yeah, what are some steps people can take? That's probably okay. a. So plug for our new Hanover County Arboretum staff, the extension agents there, and of course, UNCW faculty as well. Um, my department in EVS, there are a number of ecologists there now. And as ecologists, so I'm a restoration ecologist. My focus is restoring function to ecosystems. But ecologists in general study how ecosystems work. Um, so we've got a lot of ecologists now on staff and also in the biology department, marine biology department as well. Um, but our, our arboretum, the, the extension agents there, are. this is exactly what they're there for, is to offer um, free information, to offer some really wonderful courses or just daily drop-in sorts of things. You can bring your soil there to get tested. Um, a lot of people think about that only in the terms of um, – food gardens, not necessarily restoration gardens or changes, but that's how I use that site um, or that, that availability. I use that service to, to test my own property soils um, to determine how acidic my soils might be. And so if you're someone who's interested in increasing biodiversity, if you're interested in um, not having to plant 
new plants every year and you're not interested in watering and fertilizing and all of the maintenance that's involved. Pesticiding, exactly. herbiciding. Exactly. If you're interested in saving money, is how I like to say it. If you're interested in saving money, go native. Um, it's it's not as easy as I would like to, to be able to say to find native plants um, at a at a nursery in town. Um, unfortunately, we've had a few that have moved on to other parts of the state, but they they are out there. Um, the Arboretum has great resources available. I've got resources available if people wanted to learn more. And maybe um, we can post some of those absolutely. W- with this episode. Yeah, and the Arboretum does plant sales routinely throughout the year. And I went this past year and the sheer magnitude of native local um, flowers and grasses and trees and shrubs just blew my mind. I, I'm so used to only seeing like one or two vendors. And over, I feel like over half the entire plant sale were all native um, native species growers and, and sellers. People so are really starting to understand the importance of that. I think so. I think, I think not only are they understanding the importance of it, but I think people are understanding um, – there's like a cultural pride in it, right? I mean, knowing that you have the landscape that ecologically should thrive here um, is something to to really appreciate. And when you do get into the nitty gritty of it and you do look at your lawn and it's not turf grass and you realize in spring, my husband knows not to mow our backyard in spring because there are so many beautiful, teeny tiny little flowering species there that we would have we would have missed otherwise if he mowed it. I've got beautiful. So that's an aesthetic for you. It is. And it's also a functional thing, right? Absolutely. For the bugs and the birds and Absolutely. For all the wildlife. Um I mean obviously I'm a I'm a plant geek. So <laughs> a little a little already going that way, but there's there's so much beauty if you just stop and look. Now you said backyard. There are going to be a lot of people listening to this mm-hmm. who live in HOAs mm-hmm. that were sodded with yep. grass that isn't native. You said to me when we first spoke, um, you know why it's so hard to ha- keep a healthy lawn? Because they didn't belong here. Exactly. So, so what yeah. would you say to folks who have to, as of right now, mm-hmm. and perhaps this is also something that could be part of a movement, mm-hmm. like let's start looking at something that could be beautiful as well that incorporates it. But, but let's say that nothing changes in the near term on that front. Yeah. How can people kind of pursue the aesthetic without necessarily doing the sodded lawn thing? Ex- excellent question. And so, yeah, HOAs definitely can hinder us. I will say from my experience, I feel like they are getting better, that they too are starting to understand the importance. And we're not just talking about the aesthetics of natives as a lawn, right? We're talking about ecosystem function. Native plants are going to help with flood control. They're going to help with soil erosion. They're going to help with all of those things that we don't want to, we don't want to have to deal with, right? Um, and so they're providing these ecosystem services that a lawn grass alone isn't necessarily going to be able to do. I'm not going to say they can't do anything, but natives are far better equipped to survive the changing conditions um, and the environment that we have here and the very, very poor nutrient um, nutrient load we have in our very sandy soils. Um, but, but the key to anybody is start small. 
I mean, it's like that with anything, right? Even like an exercise program. You don't just jump in and go whole hog and you're in the gym every day, an hour plus working out and getting that body. Um, same thing with, with landscaping. I, I gave a talk at the Arboretum, I think two years ago now, and it was basically like lessons learned. Restoration's hard and it takes patience. I was literally going to rip out my one of my own native gardens in my house at my property because it just wasn't thriving. And I'm like, that's it. I'm just going to turn everything over. I'm going to start from scratch. And, you know, time gets away and you don't get to do it. And lo and behold, that fall, everything popped. Everything was like, look, no, I'm really here. Don't mow me over. Yeah. Um, and so time, patience and time in doing little things. What it starts you... with like one garden at a time, not the whole the whole yard. Don't transform your yard. Just start with yeah, some areas. Exactly. Like, Just start with one garden patch or one flower patch or, and then you can expand. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Is, so developers went through, a, I think it's it's still happening mm-hmm. um, quite ubiquitously in Brunswick County, Ligustrum. Mm. <laughs> <sighs> and if you don't know what that is, <sighs> by Amy Long's reaction, <laughs> you it know <laughs> it's an invasive species. It's awful. It's, it's, a, awful. it's a bush yeah. that grows. It's a very... Um, well, it grows really well around here. It does. Here. We it have grows to say really that. well. And it chokes out <laughs> so everything. So does wisteria. <laughs> and kudzu. No. <laughs> so wisteria is also oh, gosh, not yeah. native. So we have a native wisteria. That's the irony. We've got a beautiful native wisteria. It's the same beautiful purple and white flowers, um, that grape-like, that grape-like hanging collection of flowers. Um, Airly Gardens has some. On their property, you can visit Watson School of Education on UNCW's campus has the native behind it. But we're planting non-native. But we're planting the non-native. And so what happens is um, so frequently these these non-natives that are introduced are introduced because, well, they're prettier or the flower lasts longer or there's more variety in the colors. There's there's things like that that um, drive us to change our environment without thinking through the consequences. And one thing I like to tell my students is just because a plant or an animal or an insect isn't native doesn't mean it's gonna be bad. In fact, less than like 2% actually become these invasive species. Um, but then you have kudzu. But then you have something like kudzu. And ligustrum. <laughs> and ligustrum. Which does choke out other species. Absolutely. So if somebody moves into a house mm-hmm. that has these robust ligustrum shrub trees yeah. in the Bradford front. Bradford pear, there's another one. Yes. <laughs> Do, is it worth going to the trouble of tearing that stuff out? I would say absolutely yes. <laughs> and why? Why can't we just leave it there? Um, Because I don't think most people are going to be able to prevent the further spread of them. Why? Certain things, like all these species we discussed, um, and like popcorn trees, another one, they have wonderful fruits. And people think, oh, but the birds and the wildlife love them. And that might be true. And the birds might love them. And as they eat those berries, and they fly off, and then they poop. Can I say that word? Yeah. They poop. <laughs> when they poop, um, they're planting the seed. And poop, as everyone probably knows, is a fertilizer. So now there are these fertilized seeds in the landscape. And that's how these invasions for aggressive non-native species 
kind of get a jump start. And to just put a, like, hammer this home, Mm -hmm. so a bird can fly to a suburban area in Brunswick Mm -hmm. County and then go to the restored grassland Mm -hmm. habitat at the New Hanover County landfill, poop out ligustrum, Mm -hmm. plant it, Mm -hmm. and choke out all the work that you've been doing. Absolutely. Yep. That's exactly what can happen. What would a good substitute for ligustrum be? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, so one of the ways I try to, to educate people about the importance of biodiversity in local um, native plants is through our annual Tree Fest event. So I'm currently the chairperson for that event. We just had our 26th um, annual event two weekends ago, January 19th and 20th. Um, I've been with that event since 2010. Um, Since I've been involved with it, every year we give out anywhere from 3,000 to 13,000 individual trees and now native grasses. We've been doing native grasses now for, I think, about seven years. And so this year's event, we had, we gave away over 4,300 trees. We gave away over... um, 1,350 grass plugs. And so that's one way of interacting with the community and getting them to make those small, subtle changes in their landscape. Um, and we try to pick things that, that are good substitutes for things like Logustrum or Bradford pear. So people want shrubbery that they can use as privacy fencing. Um, so like silky dogwood is a wonderful alternative. Um, lots of smaller trees like um, redbud, for example, our native crab apple. Um, we've got all we always try to pick a suite of plants that are offering shrubbery size, small tree size, flowering trees. Everyone wants things that fruit or seed if they're edible. Um, now you so you give out these plugs of native grasses, mm-hmm. and what do you expect somebody to do with that one plug that they're taking? Is it is it going to if they stick it in the ground? Is it going to proliferate or what? What do you do with That's it? That's a great question. Um, first of all, if I were there to give them the grass, I'd be like, you need five. <laughs> I I believe in planting in odd numbers, so at least three, five, five if we have them. Um, so that's the, that's kind of like the good thing to a lot of people about our native grasses that we give out is that they're all bunch grasses. So a lot of people are familiar with pink muley grass, beautiful native grass. Has there's a white variety and a purple variety or pink variety that flowers in the in the fall. That gets really really thick and bushy, but it doesn't sprawl. And that's the same thing with the grasses that we give out at Tree Fest. So we've got like wire grass, which is again related to that that um, Arista condensata at the landfill. We give out Indian grass and little blue stem and big blue stem, although we didn't have any big blue stem this year. And all of those grasses are what are considered bunch grasses. So they don't tend to sprawl. Um, they can but they don't tend to. So, so how they come would back. somebody? Yeah. So how would somebody help them s- sprawl if they were gonna? If you if you really wanted to do that, when it's once the seeds have like once once the flowers have set to seed, you could collect the seed, and then plant the seed where you want to. Um, all of the native grasses of those species I just mentioned that I have in my own landscape, I 
I put in through seeding. I didn't even use plugs. I, I've just seeded various gardens with my natives. Now, I've heard that trees also like um, partners and communities. Mm-hmm. So instead of – so it's better than to plant more than one tree in an area if you're going to be planting your own native trees. Is that right? Like how would you how would you arrange I it? describe myself as like the Lorax Santa. So <laughs> again, I'm going to very biasly say, yes, plant more if you've got the space. Um, and spacing and where you're planting, of course, is really important. So it, at our tree events, we try to educate everybody with um, the site conditions that the, these trees are suited for, they're locally grown, so they're adapted to the coastal plain. Um, you want to make sure that you're not near the right-of-way on your property, like the front of your property. You don't want to be around um, electri- any buried electrical. You really should do that. What is the call before you dig? Is that 811? Um, so, I mean, site preparation and knowledge is important, but I, I always recommend planting a little more than one. Um, In certain species, you actually need multiples like persimmons. There's males and females. So if you want fruit of our native persimmon, you need need both of those, or at least in your local area. Um, So yeah, there's there's all sorts of things to consider when you're you're making your selection like that. And of course, we will include on the website um, links to resources for this, including the Arboretum. Yeah. And we have 10 seconds. What's, what's the final thing that you would really like people to understand from this conversation? Um, get out and look. Like biodiversity is all around you. It's beautiful. It's there. And just, take, just ground yourself in it. We've got a beautiful place, and it's special. So. And that is this edition of Coastline. Amy Long of UNCW's Environmental Sciences Department, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.